when we try to formulate an ethical position as Christians, and we take the argument that's going on in culture, and we just simply either try to refute it or try to defend it, we end up a lot of times answering the wrong question. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. Today's episode will be a little bit different. We're delighted to have with us today Dr. Andrew Spencer, and he's going to talk to Dr. Ken Keithley and Benjamin Quinn for all three segments on today's episode. In our Christ and Culture conversation, we'll talk to him about a theology of creation care in his new book on the topic. After that, we'll talk to him about uh, some books that are on his bookshelf right now in our segment called On My Bookshelf. But first, let's begin with our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about business, specifically energy. Before we do so, do us a huge favor. Go to your favorite podcast platform, subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and give us a brief review. It'll take you 30 seconds, but it goes a long, long way to helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. What are the connections between the Great Commission and creation care? And should Christians care about the environment at all? These are hot topics to be considered today, Dr. Keithley. Yes, indeed they are. And we're glad to welcome back to the podcast today, Dr. Andrew Spencer, affectionately known by his friends as Spence. Dr. Spencer serves as Associate Editor for Books at the Gospel Coalition. He holds a PhD from Southeastern Seminary, and he's the author of many books, including the book we'll discuss today, Hope for God's Creation, Stewardship in an Age of Futility. Dr. Spencer, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Every time I have the opportunity to talk to you about creation care, I gravitate towards the question about energy needs in our country. And this is because even though your PhD is in ethics vocationally, You've had quite a career uh, working in nuclear energy, seven years with the Navy, 11 years commercially. Let's talk about that just for a second. As we look at the energy needs of our country and the world, we talk about the effect of, of, of greenhouse gases. First off, let's talk about solar energy. The cost of solar energy, they say, is dropping to the floor what do you think about solar energy? Does it have much of a future for our country? Good question. So first of all, I have solar panels on my roof at home. And so that makes up about 70% of my total energy consumption every year. You know, sunny summers reduces my electricity bill. It's a good thing. So I think solar is definitely a piece of the, the overall energy mix. Uh, the same with wind. The issue with the solar as the sole source or a primary source is that it's significantly weather dependent because at night 
I don't get any power from my solar panels, which would either require me to have expensive batteries, which which I don't. Uh, I'm floated on the grid. So I provide the grid electricity and then I get it back uh, and basically use it as a as a battery some days and receive some of that energy back from the grid. Or we would have to have massive storage on the grid. Uh, which has been discussed, and there's there's been technological progress made toward hydrogen storage uh, as a means of kind of mass storage of electricity. So it definitely should be considered as part of the mix, but because of its limitations and the expense of the storage, it does raise some questions about the ability to be all of it. Yeah. Well, you had me at 70%. Uh, if I heard you correctly, you're saying that this has resulted in a 70% reduction in your monthly electric bill on on the average. That's correct. Well, okay. Well, then let's move. You have had quite a bit of uh, of experience in nuclear energy. You know, it's interesting that just about everyone agrees that creation care is a good idea. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of any any evangelical Christian that you and I know that would actually be against it, and, and yet even though there's general agreement about creation care in principle. Uh, there's there's a there's a an enormous amount of, of of disagreement when it comes to implementing in policy and nuclear energy is a good example of this. There are uh, many people who argue for creation care, but then when you point out to them the advantages of nuclear energy, they they seem to freeze up. Uh, pardon the pun. Why not nuclear energy? Three significant events come to mind when you talk about nuclear energy with most people. The first is Chernobyl, which is a, a huge disaster. It's a natural disaster that still has consequences today. And, and you know, the Chernobyl pops up periodically uh, in discussions uh, with the ongoing Ukraine war. The second one is Three Mile Island, which was the, the second big one. In, and it's the only one of significance in the United States, which was in comparison to Chernobyl, significantly smaller. And then the third one, of course, is is the Fukushima Daiichi disaster that happened in 2011. Uh, those three events, at least in the United States, have significantly shaped the perception of, of uh, commercial nuclear power and driven people against it. Now, we have to look at the root causes for those things. And, and having been you know, 17 years or so in military and commercial nuclear power, I've studied those case studies and I've, as an instructor, taught on those case studies multiple times. The first two of those, Chernobyl was extreme violations of safety protocol. Um, there are reactors that were built of the same design as that Chernobyl design uh, that are still in operation today. They have added some safety features to them, but the reactor design itself wasn't the problem. The problem was gross violation of the rules that were put in place to prevent safety systems uh, from failing. They, they disabled their safety systems because they were trying to run a test and it had to do with the sociological conditions. So uh, you can prevent that by creating a culture within a nuclear power plant that affirms safety as the number one priority, which is what our commercial nu nuclear power industry does, especially in the US, but it's also a world organization, the World Organization of Nuclear Power. Well, and then Three Mile Island was a training failure their operators didn't understand how their systems worked and they didn't believe the indications that they had of the current plant status. As a result, they made mistakes and actually lost the cooling inventory because they didn't operate their plant correctly. The result of that was 
an accreditation system for uh, commercial nuclear power and it affected the way the military trained their personnel as well, so that plants go in and they evaluate, are you training appropriately and ensuring your operators are qualified uh, in order to operate this and ask questions. And there's curriculum standards that are enforced at the, the national level uh, and that are influenced at the international level to make sure that those mistakes don't happen again. And then Fukushima Daiichi, of course, is is one that's being discussed because they're currently releasing uh, low-level radioactive water, mostly it's it's tritium, it's uh, hydrogen with with a couple extra neutrons in it um, into into the into the sea, and that's that's a big point of discussion at this point. Um, and that happened in part because of a failure of uh, the TEPCO company to take guidance that came from the World Nuclear Organization to make some design upgrades, and it was sort of a fluke as well, with the disaster being in excess of the design limitations. The industry has learned from that and has invested billions of dollars in creating more robust auxiliary systems and portable systems to make sure that if an event that is outside of the design basis happens at any nuclear plant, that there are resources available and equipment available to prevent further damage that would cause uh, a release of radioactive material that could harm the public. Uh, there is a common thread in all three of the incidents that you've just presented in a very clear way, and that is human error. And I think that I think that uh, I can hear the skeptic saying yes. As long as we don't have humans operating them, we shouldn't have a problem. So is it possible for us to have designs of nuclear plants that human error will not result in a environmental disaster? I mean, one of the basic assumptions of all human performance systems, whether it's NASA or the Institute of Nuclear Power Operators or whoever, is that where humans are, their human error will go as well. So there's a lot of work done in 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 trying to minimize the potential for human error. And at the same time, there's been a lot of significant advance in the nuclear industry and in technology in using what are called passive safety systems instead of active safety systems. And so instead of relying on auxiliary electricity, a, a huge diesel generator to provide emergency power, the newer designs, which we only have one that's commercially in operation right now in the United States. It relies on passive systems so that if electricity goes away, which is a, a major problem, then it releases the water that will provide the cooling and it floods the core. And so it's passively safe. Uh, so it's inherently safe. So there's design things that can be put in place that are being put in place in newer, newer designs. Uh, additionally, with the smaller scale nuclear power, there are significant efforts, smaller scale, lower risk, because there's less radioactive material that could be released uh, and it's easier con to control. The other piece to keep in mind here is that the risk of an accident is calculated instantaneously in a commercial nuclear po uh, power plant constantly based on the current plant conditions. So if they're doing maintenance on a subsystem that takes it out of service for a period of time, there are rules that state how long that can be. Uh, and also a, a, a computer calculation that goes on that states, this elevates your risk at this point. And the risk is measured in, in the likelihood of a a, an accident happening in one to the billions of reactor years, but the risk is actually pretty low and it's significantly less than actually 
you know, having coal ash uh, flood a river or yeah. something like that that could happen. Yeah, people people forget sometimes that uh, that the typical uh, power plants like coal based and others uh, they have environmental cost. Uh, that that are significant. Also, speaking, let's move move on over to what's uh, the pie in the sky, uh, holy grail, and and that's fusion. There's been a lot of excitement about that. Uh, whenever Lawrence Livermore uh, Laboratories last year achieved what they call ignition, you know, where the yield uh, they yielded more energy than they put into it. Um, that is, there seems to be something going on in the area of fusion. I mean, I've we've we've heard the old joke that they're always 30 years out from uh, from being able to be commercially viable, uh, no matter, you know, every 10 years, they'll say, well, just, you know, we're just 30 years out. But there does seem to be something new going on. There's uh, 39 new startups. I watched a video recently about uh, Hellion uh, Energy. Is something new going on in the area of fusion? Is Do you, do you see progress there? I will say that from having been recently engaged in the conversations even a year ago, that's not something that the the Institute of Nuclear Power Operators is really talking about as something in the near future. Um, those small scale reactors are are much more uh, the hot topic because they're they're in the process that some of them have been licensed uh, at this point. Is it possible? Yes, we'll see. Uh, and the two things that have to happen is it has to be proved to be reliable and it has to be proved to be uh well i guess there's three things reliable uh, reasonably economical and safe as well i think we're a ways away from that with regard to fusion but it's an exciting time and, and we'll see what happens Here at Southeastern, we know that our global Great Commission impact is only made possible by faithful ministry partners and supporters like you who share our vision for equipping students to make disciples through the local church and around the world. On Giving Tuesday, November 28th, we invite you to join us by giving to support our Great Commission efforts. To give now or to learn more about how your giving can have an eternal Great Commission impact, visit sebts.edu slash give. Well, just from this conversation, it's clear that you're someone who knows a great deal about uh, energy production and environmental ethics. And so let's talk about the book that you have written on creation care. What motivated you to write this particular book? One thing was just a simple background. Uh, because I've been involved in uh, commercial and military uh, nuclear power, uh, and because as as a person that works for a, a major utility or, or did, um, it brought up questions about how our electricity is made. And so it was a kind of a, a, of interest to me and reading about different different ways that we make electricity and, and how those affect uh, the way that we live and how those impact the environment. Um, but you can't escape the conversation. Uh, and it's one that um, Christians, especially evangelicals, uh, have been a little late to the game. You've seen, if you watch kind of the, the Google graph of, of evangelical environmentalism or evangelical creation care, it generally flows where the conversation goes in the general public. So you have early discussions of it, like, you know, Francis Schaeffer in, in 1970. Then there's some publishing that goes along. Then it faded for a while as, as abortion and other social issues began to take priority. Uh, in the 2000s, it became a, a big issue. Uh, and so 
one of the reasons then as I stepped into academic study is the realization in the late 2000s, A, the conversation was beginning to fade because people were more concerned, I think, about financial crisis and, and those things than environment. And then B, I didn't find a lot of people answering a question starting from the theological orientation of it. A lot of people answered it well, or some people answered it well from the perspective of what does scripture say, but they didn't root it in a systematic theology. And so I was looking as I as I did this to ask, what are the fundamental theological questions that we have to answer in order to answer the bigger question about what, what should we do about uh, God's creation? So as you as you, I, th- I think I hear what you're saying is that you're you're not trying to make a case just for a baptized version of environmentalism uh, or a Christianized understanding of environmentalism. So if I hear you right, you're trying to have a theology of creation. Uh, yeah, uh, a theology of creation care, which touches on a theology of creation. Right, that's one of the four key pillars uh, of of how I approached creation care in the book. Because when we try to formulate an ethical position as Christians, and we take the argument that's going on in culture, and we just simply either try to refute it or try to defend it, we end up a lot of times answering the wrong question. So rather than trying to reverse engineer uh, some sort of biblical basis or theological basis for why we should care about carbon emissions. I tried to take a step back and say, what is the authority by which I make decisions? Then uh, what is the value of God's creation? Why does it have a, a value? Uh, not not necessarily the, you know, the order of creation, but but really why is it important? Then given those things, what is the human role in all of creation? And then finally, really the other major question is, what is the end goal of creation and where is it going? And then how do those things, those deep theological uh, ideas, affect the way that I live from day to day? Dr. Quinn, what, do you, what is your perception of the way that evangelicals think about creation care? Well, like, like Andrew said, it tends to ebb and flow with the cultural conversation. And it's, it's one that, Andrew, at least for me, this is the way that I've experienced it. It's a conversation that a lot of uh, sort of true blue evangelicals, even more Southern Baptists, and especially in rural contexts, they're not out and out opposed to environmentalism or creation care. They just don't quite know how they're supposed to relate to it because it be- has become such a politicized issue. So I'm, I want to ask you this question. If you're at my church, I, I, pastor a, I pastor a small rural church here in North Carolina, and our folks are not opposed to caring for the creation. In fact, I, I'll often make the case to them the folks like the people in my church, they love the outdoors as much as anybody in the country or anybody in the world, but they don't quite know how to think about creation care or environmentalism because of how it tends to, sometimes it lives a little far to the left for them, or they're just not quite sure who to trust on it. How would you how would you encourage them just to think a little more carefully about uh, not a politicized version of this, but just a, a thoroughly Christian approach to caring for the world that God's made and, and has entrusted to his people? That's a really good uh, basic question because I grew up in rural Western New York, uh, surrounded by a bunch of little uh, dairy farms, a lot of which are, have gone under because uh, just the the pr- uh, economic pressures that that face uh, small farmers in particular and the consolidation that goes on. And so those are those are real hard questions. Uh, and so uh, George Monbiot just wrote a book last year. Uh, <laughs> arguing for a farm-free future because he wants to get rid of agriculture as as a whole endeavor. And, and that's not 
a helpful way to approach it. Uh, in fact, we need more farms, probably smaller farms, but farms that are looking at not just that are incorporating soil health into the thought process in addition to some of the things related to you know yields and output. So it is a hard topic and it's it's hard especially for the people that you know a lot of farmers, even if you have uh, if you're bringing in millions of dollars as a, as a farmer in revenue, a lot of times the net that you get, out of that because of interest payments on huge specialized farm equipment and the land uh, that you've had to either lease or uh, pay a mortgage on. Uh, it puts an incredible pressure on a family so that you may be bringing in millions and, and living on $70,000, for example, right? Which is a, a, a decent uh, middle class or lower middle class, depending on where you are, salary. So there's real challenges there. Um, so what I would do and what I do to, in my own congregation, which has some farmers, is encourage them to think about uh, long-term soil health as a component of what they're thinking about as they choose fertilizers, as they look for crop rotation, uh, and to begin to consider, you know, let's let's assume that we're going to pass this uh, farm down to the children and the children's children. How do we maintain soil health, the health of the uh, the rivers that are nearby or the creeks in order to to maximize long-term yield? And part of what's happened, and you see this in writings um, of people like Joel Salatin, uh, where he he talks about how some of the agricultural thinking that's very common uh, in in our day takes more of a mechanized view of all of creation. Uh, that is just a machine that somehow, if you get the right chemical cocktail, that it doesn't really matter where it comes from or how it goes in, or you know, and it and and you don't necessarily always think about what's happening with soil compaction. So it's a process, and it's hard, right? But it's a process of beginning to think about long-term soil health because that's a huge deal, and runoff and all those things, and put those into the whole package. Spence, tell me about just some practical tips, practical ways that everyday people can can begin to care for the creation a little bit better without going so far as let me use the kind of language that oftentimes has responded to me look I'm, I'm not a tree hugger but I, I love I want to do what I can but what can I do is this is this a matter of tr- recycle when you can don't use roundup on your grass can we use triple 13 fertilizer what about lime what you know these kinds of things. So just talk to the everyday ordinary Christ follower and just say, here are two or three things that if uh, that if you can do these things, these are some of the first steps to to taking more seriously our call to steward God's world well, um, and also towards a Christian approach to creation care. Yeah, the first thing I would I would say is think about how you're living and whether you're you're seeking to live a quiet life, like what Paul calls us to live. And a lot of the consumer choices that we make uh, as as Americans uh, are based on our convenience, and a lot of them are just auto-programmed and kind of thoughtless. I think the quiet life requires us to think about what we do, where we live, and how we get by. And so, you know, I live in a suburban neighborhood. It's a growing, developing neighborhood. But one of the reasons why I chose the neighborhood that I did was the proximity to work so that I could minimize the miles driven. And there's economic reasons for that because, you know, miles cost money. And there's environmental reasons for that as well. 
I think about consumer purchases so that when I go to buy a widget at a store, um, I, I begin to think, do I really need this? Can I borrow it? Uh, or is this something that I'm just purchasing for the, the dopamine hit that I'm going to throw away? How can I maximize uh, the utility of this thing, uh, which is both an economic choice uh, and an environmental choice? And a lot of this you know, all comes down for the the average Christian to being uh, quite a bit more frugal in the way that we live, which has benefits beyond just the environment. Because a frugal life in general, right, if if we're thinking about what we purchase and thinking about how we consume and uh, our energy use and those sorts of things, both helps us economically and frees up resources to, to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it also uses fewer resources so that we're impacting the environment less. So that's basically the idea. And, and, I, and I go through this in my book, uh, is to think about what you're doing, why you're doing it, what the impact is going to be, uh, and then to make choices that are balanced accordingly. We, we have to drive, but we don't have to maybe drive as far. Other things that I do as, as well. Uh, I don't use weed killer on my yard. Uh, I, I go through the work. I only have a quarter acre, uh, so it's not that bad. But I, I manually weed uh, in order to prevent the the weed killer from getting into the storm drains and, and eventually getting out uh, into Lake Erie. And I also do positive things as well. So I live in an HOA. I got permission in uh, to plant wildflower beds in my yard. Uh, and so I have a lot of pollinators, bees and a lot more different bugs than that. House flies or pollinators uh, that all live. And I see hummingbirds, uh, which has, even in the three years that I've had them, increased the biodiversity of our neighborhood. I have neighbors now that kind of weren't super thrilled about the flower beds initially, but now love them because I have blooms for eight to nine months out of the year. Uh, and also because they're seeing birds, uh, goldfinches love my flowers as well. And just it, it's the it's kind of the enjoyment of nature. I have a little more than a quarter acre. I, I don't love to weed eat. There's only so much weed eating that you can do. But I, I also don't love putting Roundup or some type of a generic Roundup onto especially areas like drainage ditches and where there's going to be runoff and potentially further damage. But I don't always know where to go from there. Um, Spence, where would you, are there recommendations for certain chemicals that are not as harmful or just places we could go to, to begin investigating this a little more carefully? So I would go to places like your state university system has an extension uh, center that has discussions that are environmentally conscious about different, uh, you know, herbicides and pesticides uh, and their potential consequences. And so I would use those resources that, you know, we're already paying for as part of our taxes uh, in order to to kind of research those things. I would tend to avoid the manufacturer's website uh, just because they have a vested interest in, in kind of presenting the best side of it. And this doesn't mean that we can never use these things. It just means we need to be cautious and we need to be very thoughtful about it. Spence, you in your book, you are pushing back against those who call for caring for the environment from a position of fear. What I hear you doing is arguing from a position of hope. Can you talk about the difference? When we are motivated by fear, we are focused on a short-term response. And, you know, there's an emergency, you know, the bear's coming, I've got to go run away. Um, so, 
fear emergencies they're they're useful for getting maybe a short-term knee-jerk reaction um unfortunately that's entirely ineffective uh at changing the way that we think about the world which is what we need to do if we're going to live faithfully and care for creation so hope says what's god doing in this world that he he has redeemed his people uh, and is redeeming his people and that he's promised at the end of all things to redeem all of creation to restore it uh and and to bring about a new creation and the new heavens and the new earth and so we look forward to that and we ask okay so in light of the fact that god's moving toward this new heavens and new earth how do i live in a way that what francis called uh, Schaefer calls brings substantial healing. That is, I don't expect to make everything right, right? I'm not shooting for repristination. I'm not trying to bring back the Garden of Eden. But how do I live in a way that uh, honors the the command that that uh, God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.15 uh, to cultivate and keep the earth, which then he affirmed, you know, uh, that covenant or that the responsibility uh, with Noah after the flood. Um, so, it's a hopeful position because God's going to make everything right. He's going to fix everything. The new heavens, the new earth is a garden city. It's glorious. Um, how do I reflect that anticipation now and wait for it with, with hope, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8? Um, and that's what motivates and should motivate the way that we, uh, we treat the world around us. Dr. Spencer, tell us again the name of your book and where people might be able to find it. So the book is Hope for God's Creation, Stewardship in an Age of Futility. Um, it's available on Amazon. It's available on Lifeway's uh, website uh, and uh, anywhere really that uh, the books are, are sold. Dr. Spencer, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Now it's time for our segment on my bookshelf in which our guests tell us what they're reading right now. So with us today is Dr. Andrew Spencer. Spence is a good friend. We call him Spence around here. He was at Southeastern both as a student and staff for quite a long time. Spence, I know you to be a voracious reader. You read and respond and review books faster than anyone that I know. And I'm looking at your bookshelves right now and there's books everywhere. I think you should strongly pray about a better cataloging system. Nonetheless, Spence, what's on your bookshelf right now? So very recently I, I read, uh, it's an older book, uh, but it's Richard Lovelace's Dynamics of Spiritual Life. Uh, so it's one that I, I came to uh, through Colin Hansen's uh, intellectual biography of Tim Keller uh, that came out from Zondervan Reflective this year. But uh, so Lovelace's book, he, he details and digs into um, what spiritual renewal has looked like through the history of the church. Uh, things that have distracted from that, things that have strengthened that. Uh, so it's a historical and theological, but also a very kind of devotional book as well uh, that's helped me to think uh, in my own local church context about how we can uh, encourage practices that will uh, help people to have spiritual renewal in their own lives. Fantastic. Tell us the name of the book again and the author. Dynamics of Spiritual Life by Richard Lovelace. Fantastic. And just for kicks, uh, knowing how much you read, I'm going to throw a bone to you and see how you handle it. If you could only pick one book off of your bookshelf for the rest of your life, which would it be? So setting aside the Bible, right? Uh, the, uh, the, the, the theological book uh, I think that I would pick would be uh, uh, Bob Inc.'s Reform Dogmatics. 
feeds my mind and my soul. Yeah, very much, very much. Andrew, thank you for being with us. Remind us, how can people follow your work? So I blog regularly at uh, ethicsandculture.com. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I, I work for the Gospel Coalition, so I write there periodically as well. I think, I, I think that was, you know, selecting Bob Inc. is cheating just slightly because that's four volumes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. I was going to ask, are you talking about the abridged one volume or are you cheating and trying to get the, the class action there? Thanks for listening to today's episode. We're going to take next week off for Thanksgiving as you're going to be enjoying some turkey and stuffing and all the things. So have a great Thanksgiving season and we will see you for our next episode in December.